You are listening to The Best in Wealth Podcast, episode number 70. This is The Best in Wealth Podcast, a show for successful family stewards who want real answers about wealth and investing so we can feel secure about our family's future. At The Best in Wealth Podcast, we think differently about wealth and investing. You should do. Hello, everyone. My name is Scott Wellens, and I am your host of the Best in Wealth Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping real people, that is you, build real wealth so together we can take family stewardship to the next level. I am a certified financial planner, an educator, and a wealth advisor. It's great to be with you today, and thank you so much for tuning in to the Best in Wealth Podcast. means the world to me. And I do have a favor. I haven't asked this in a long, long time, but... If you really like this show, please, and you're listening on iTunes, please go to iTunes, click on the reviews at Best in Wealth, and leave an honest review. That would be great. That helps my rating on iTunes, which means more and more people can listen to me blabber about wealth and family and investing and all that stuff that we talk about each and every week, except for the few times that I actually take a week off. Try not to do that. And I'm doing my best to get an episode out every single week remaining uh, this year, which is a lot to go. And we're on episode 70 now. So that is a good thing. And today's episode, I haven't even said that yet, is called the indexing approach. And And this is going to kind of piggyback off of last week. So if you haven't listened to episode number 69 yet, please go back and listen to episode 69 before this one. Not that you have to, but I strongly encourage it. Now, a couple things before we dive into the weeds a little bit. First off, I tell you what I don't love. I was living in Cincinnati with a greater Cincinnati area for 20 years, but I grew up in Wisconsin. So when my wife and I wanted to have friends or family over, we hoped and prayed that their trip from Wisconsin to the greater Cincinnati area would happen without flaws so they would continue to come and visit us. Because the two major things, well three actually, that can happen when you're driving from Wisconsin to Cincinnati are number one, traffic, obviously. Number two, the time it takes to get through Chicago because you have to go through Chicago or around Chicago and that can always cause hiccups in your trip, can delay you an hour or more depending on traffic. And then number three is weather. Once you get closer and closer to Wisconsin, you never know what kind of snowfall you will encounter. So when we would have friends over, sometimes people would make it without any trouble at all. And to give you an idea, it takes about from Milwaukee to Cincinnati about six hours on a good day. There needs to be uh, just one bathroom break and lunch, and you got to be you know, on your game, but you can do it in six hours, and that means no snowfall. That means limited to no traffic in Chicago, and that means that traffic was relatively good throughout the trip, maybe a couple of small delays, but that is it. 
So when friends came to visit us, we always knew that if they took them a long time to get here or get home, we may never see them again until we go visit them. Well, now the opposite's true because after 20 years, I'm back in Milwaukee or back in Wisconsin living in Milwaukee, and now I want my friends from Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky to come visit me. And this weekend, our good, good friends are coming to visit. We got a couple of problems, though. Number one, they're not going to leave until this afternoon or around lunchtime because their little boy has some sort of presentation he needs to give for school. That will put them smack dab in Chicago during Friday rush hour, which is going to be horrible. Number two, it's raining all night long, and this rain that's supposed to continue through the day is going to turn to snow at some point, and that could delay them even further. So I hope and pray, and I please hope that you will hope and pray with me that my friends will have a safe trip and a quick trip so they come and visit us often. That's number one. Number two, my daughter's been running around the house saying things like, Daddy, I'm about to watch a show on TV, and you should too. So I don't know if she likes that I start every podcast off with, and you should too, or she's just making fun of me. And I think it's the latter, but I just want to pretend that she really, really likes when I do that. But I'm telling you, she said it 15 times yesterday, and it was hilarious. Let's get to the topic of the day. All right, friends, topic of the day, the indexing approach. What am I talking about? Well, if you remember from last week, episode number 69, we did a show on the mutual fund landscape and we figured out, and I'm not going to go through all the numbers, but just the one big number that of all the mutual funds that exist in the United States, over 3,500 of them, I think we came up with that number. When we look back 15 years, only 17% of these mutual funds actually beat the market, beat the index. So as a family steward, we have to take this into consideration. We have to say to ourselves, do I want to take the chance and invest in mutual funds that only have a 17% chance of beating the market. As a family steward, am I in a position that I need to take that kind of a gamble? Because really, that is gambling. You are the gambler. You are not the casino in this situation because your odds are low of beating the market or getting what you deserve for investing in the market in the, ver- in the first place. You know, when we put money into the stock market, we're doing it and we're taking risk. We deserve what the stock market has to offer. And there is so much power in the market and is such a great growth tool when used correctly as a family steward. And these mutual funds that I'm talking about get this label, actively managed mutual funds. And in the long run, they do quite poorly. The other thing we discovered in episode 69 is if you're just looking at five and 10 year returns and you're basing your judgment off of picking those mutual funds, which quite honestly, most of us do, 
When we look at subsequent five-year returns, we don't see persistence. So that's not a good measure either. But I didn't give you a solution last week. I just said the mutual fund company, number one, a great tool to use for diversification. And diversification is so vitally important when we're investing. But I didn't give you an approach or a system to use. I just said how bad mutual funds perform relative to the market. So one philosophy, and this is basically going to be a three-part series, okay? One philosophy... When people realize that the mutual fund industry is made up more for themselves than for the consumer, since they have a very hard time beating the market, and one of the reasons is because of the expenses are so high, they're charging a lot of money to be in this mutual fund, you put your hands up and say, hey, all right, if all of these actively managed funds can't beat the market, or only 17% can, and I have no way of telling in advance which ones will, why, how do I just participate in the market? And that is the indexing approach. But a lot of people don't understand exactly what that means. So I want to break it down a little bit for you so you can further understand the pros and the cons of an indexing approach. So let's first of all define what a commercial index is to begin with. So when I say actively managed funds can't beat the market, I'm saying that they can't beat the commercial index, or at least 17% of them. What is a commercial index? Well, two major companies that come out with commercial indexes are S&P indices and Russell indices. And you can research these yourselves. You can find S&P at um, uh, dot. S-P-I-N-D-I-C-E-S dot com. That is for S&P and the indices that they come out with, the indexes, the commercial indexes. And then the Russell website, uh, I'm not sure what that is, but I'll put both of them in the show notes and you can research. But what's a commercial index? A commercial index is not something you can invest in, but it's something used as a benchmark against your investment, whatever you're investing in. So one example of a commercial index is the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is made up of the largest 500 U.S. companies. Another commercial index is the S&P 400. The S&P 400 is made up of the next largest 400 companies, otherwise known as the mid-cap, ranging in size, the company size, between 2 and $10 billion. And then there's the S&P 600. And the S&P 600 actually has way more companies than 600 in them, but they represent the smaller portion, the small companies ranging, and I'm just giving an example, between 500 million and 2 billion. So still quite large companies. And I believe the S&P 600 has over 1,700 companies in it. Russell has the same thing, the Russell 1000, the top 1000 companies, the Russell 2000, the lower 2000 companies, and the Russell 3000, which comprehends the whole U.S. market. Now, there's a gazillion other indexes out there, like there's an S&P for energy and financials. There's all kinds of indices for developed markets and emerging markets. These are just the most popular ones. And these were developed 
So you can test your investment against how that market is doing. So if you're investing in a large cap, actively managed fund, you would use the S&P 500 as your benchmark. If you're investing in a small cap fund, you would either use the S&P 600 or the Russell 2000 as your benchmark. These are not things that you can actually invest in until some mutual fund companies decided in the early 70s with all the research and seeing that these actively managed funds couldn't beat the market, they decided to make what are called index funds, which are try to do their best to follow these commercial indexes. So if you're investing in an S&P 500 index fund, the fund's goal is to invest in every company that's in the S&P 500 index. Same thing for a small cap fund. So when we look at the definition of an indexing approach, number one, it allows the commercial index to determine the strategy. In indexing, you know, it offers a number of investment benefits over the conventional approach, no doubt. Because if you can invest in an index fund and you know that only 17% of actively managed funds actually beat the market, well, now you're in the top 17%. Not a bad place to be. See, broad-based indexes offer better diversification. They have lower fees generally than actively managed funds, and they follow a more transparent investment process, which means investors have a clearer idea of what they are getting. So at the end of the day, if you're investing in the S&P 500 and the commercial index delivered 10%, but your expense ratio is maybe one-tenth of 1%, 0 0.10, then your return would be 9.90% as long as your index was following exactly the commercial strategy, the commercial S&P that S&P comes up with that indice. Are you following me? I know. It's a lot, but we really need to dig deep to figure out what our best approach is. So those are the positives with indexing. And even if you're in the top 17%, there's still problems with indexing. It took me many years to figure this out. You see, the problem with indexing is that the commercial index provider like Russell or S&P, they determine the stocks or bonds held in the portfolio. The S&P or Russell, they publish a list, usually annually or semi-annually, containing all the stocks comprising that particular index or benchmark. So then the manager who's managing a, let's just say, S&P 500 fund attempts to closely track the benchmark. But here's the deal. This, this rigid construction works against what the strategy is intended to be in the first place. You see, most index fund managers, because there's a manager that's managing this index fund, they just are, their biggest judgment is how closely they can track the respective index. But there's three big problems with this. And these three problems are what I want to just quickly go over. The problems with this approach are threefold. The loss of control, trading disadvantage, and style drift. So let's consider 
each of these. First, the loss of control. An index manager does not start with the whole market, but instead with a list of stocks published by the index provider. I already said that. The manager holds a basket of stocks in an attempt to match or closely replicate the list. But the investment strategy is defined by this commercial index provider. So the manager has zero control over what the funds hold. Super rigid approach. So if there's obvious reasons why the manager should or shouldn't sell a fund. I mean, let's take, for example, a fund that is spy or a company that is spiraling out of control. We know that company X is going bankrupt. They used to be a large company stock. There's all this bad news going on. The stock price is gone way down. But then you have this index fund manager. And all they want to do, and their whole goal is just to closely match whatever index that they're trying to replicate. So here's this fund spiraling out of control, not fun, but company spiraling out of control. But for whatever reason, it fits within this index list. And the manager, according to the prospectus, is forced to buy this company that's horrible. That is one little example of a loss of control. There's many, many more. Here's number two, a trading disadvantage. What do I mean by that? When the new list is released, the new index list, managers must buy and sell at the same time to keep the portfolios and the returns in line with the index because that's what they're judged against. This updating process is called, I've talked about this on the show before, rebalancing or index reconstitution. But here's the deal. Everyone knows what the index fund is holding and when the index fund manager is going to rebalance. The index provider has shown his cards or her cards to the marketplace. And the index fund manager will have to trade with urgency along with all the other managers that are trying to follow the index. And this puts managers at a trading disadvantage, which usually results in much higher costs. Costs that you never see while you're in this index fund because you're just seeing these overall returns. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. It happens a lot in what's called the bid-ask spread. What, Scott, is a bid-ask spread? Let me just give you the definition. So this is from uh, Investopedia. A bid-ask spread is the amount by which the ask price exceeds the bid price for an asset in the market. The bid-ask spread is essentially the difference between the highest price that the buyer is willing to pay for an asset and the lowest price that a seller is willing to accept to sell it. You see, every time a trade is made in the stock market, There's somebody that wants to sell and there's somebody that wants to buy. But if you, this index fund manager, your requirement is to buy the fund and the fund is worth, I'm sorry, the company and the company is worth $10. But this is a small cap index. So you can't, you can't find somebody that's willing to sell it for more than $10 and 50 cents. So now you're paying this premium, this 50 cents a share. That, my friends, is what's called the bid-ask spread. When you're showing your cards, 
sellers of these companies are less likely to sell at a favorable price because they know you need to buy. You are not the casino. You're the gambler. Your cards are on the table. That, my friends, is the trading disadvantage. And that may be incremental, but all of these things that I'm talking about, this loss of control, trading advantage, these things add up and they can add up substantially in your overall portfolio and your long-term returns. Lastly, let's talk about style drift for a second. What the heck does that mean? So company prices, they change every day to reflect the market's latest expectations, but the indices rebalance only once or twice a year. So here is this index fund manager, and they are tasked to follow the Russell 2000, the smallest 2000 companies. But three or four months later, many of these companies became too big or too small that no longer fit inside this index. So now you're holding a basket of funds that don't even represent the asset class. They may be 5, 10, 15% off of the stated goal, which is the wanting the returns of the asset class, the small cap asset class. This is referred to style drift, and it happens to indexes between reconstitution dates, leaving investors to hold stocks they may not even want to own. That's not the stated goal, because at the end of the day, do you want the return of the asset class? Or do you want the return of the index? At the end of the day, we want the asset class returns. Because think again about style drift. If all of a sudden companies became too big and now they exist in other areas of your portfolio, now you may double own some of these companies. So your intended risk profile has changed. Don't get me wrong, though. Please, don't get me wrong. Given the choice between an actively managed mutual fund and then what's called a passively managed index fund, I will pick the index fund every single time. But what if, what if there was something that was better than both of these strategies? What if? What if there was a strategy that was similar to this indexing approach, yet it took into consideration loss of control? We don't want to lose control. We want to be in control of our investing. That's number one. What if there was an approach where we didn't have this trading disadvantage? In fact, we flipped the tables and now we have what's called a trading advantage in the marketplace. What if we had that? What would happen to our mutual fund returns then? And lastly, what if we didn't have style drift? What if we were able to reconstitute more than once or twice a year when it made sense? Doesn't that sound like a more robust strategy, a strategy that you can get your arms around, a strategy that a family steward should investigate, a strategy that could help us meet our goals quicker, a strategy that will help us ensure or give us a greater chance of success of not running out of money in the first place. 
that's a strategy I want to look at. That's a strategy I want to get my arms around and try to understand. And we're going to talk more about that in the next episode. Listen to me, though. I know I got in the weeds. I hope that this made sense to you. I hope that you have your arms around more listening to this episode, The Indexing Approach. And I hope that you understand listening to episode 69 that you know the active approach. Because when you understand both of these approaches, now we can move into this third approach that I want to talk about next week. This third approach that I think will give you the greatest chance for success in reaching all of your goals and creating abundance in your life and building abundance in your cornerstones. That's it. I'm off the soapbox. I'm out of time. I hope you have an awesome week and I'm going to see you win on the flip side. Bye-bye everyone. Take care. The Best in Wealth Podcast is hosted by Scott Wellens. Scott Wellens is the principal at Fortress Planning Group. Fortress Planning Group is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities Act of Wisconsin in accordance with compliance with securities laws and regulations. Fortress Planning Group does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Best in Wealth Podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.